Thursday at Home Festival podcast. Producer Trent here. This episode is from the Sunday Science Shambles Q&A shows that we do every Sunday, hosted by Robin Ince and Helen Chesky. And their guests this week were Professor Brian Cox and Professor Matthew Cobb. And we also had some music from 1201 Alarm. We have sent more money out this week from the tip jar to various artists and performers and a number of venues as well that are really struggling uh, due to the coronavirus pandemic at the moment. So if you'd like to help out, we are gathering a fund together for that. Cosmicshandles.com slash stay at home is where you can go to drop a tip in the jar or if you'd like to support us at the Cosmic Shambles Network and all the stuff that we do, uh, not just the stay at home festival but science shambles and book shambles and the live events when they're allowed again and the documentaries and everything else, it's patreon.com slash book shambles. Here is today's episode. Welcome to uh, Sunday Science Q&A, uh, which has become a regular thing over the last five weeks. And uh, I'll tell you a couple of things. First of all, today we are joined, as usual, by Helen Chersky. We have Professor Brian Cox back. And also I'll give you some other news there, which is uh, we are currently working out how to do the Infinite Monkey Cage from home. So we're going to do a very different version. Uh, but this week we're going to be doing all the mic tests and stuff like that. So there's going to be a new series of the Infinite Monkey Cage. And we're also joined by a man who is just a polymath. Uh, a, a wonderful uh, scientist, uh, very often uh, in terms of understanding ideas of evolutionary biology, sometimes entomology, and his latest book is all about the human brain and uh, how much we don't know. So it's a really big book. It's about what we don't know. It's enormous. It's a book of infinity. Borges <laughs> would probably write a book about the book of what is not known about the brain. Uh, that would exist in one of his labyrinths, and that is Matthew Cobb. So uh, we're going to join Matthew in a moment. Uh, quickly to tell you that next week on the 10 a.m. show with Josie Long, we've got Mark is uh, on Monday. We've got Sophie Hagen coming up, the poet Luke Wright. We've got Marcus Briggs, Rachel Paris. Uh, we've also got uh, Richard Wiseman on Friday and we've got Dr. Carl on Tuesday as well. So any questions you have for Dr. Carl, we'll be going live to him. That's at 10am. And the final thing to tell you is we have a tip jar at the bottom of this and we have been building up a resource of money for the arts industry for various people who you might have seen in, in the news that about 85% for instance of comedians have not had any form of uh, government support or anything as yet and they have no work. This is not the comedians who have TV or radio or anything else. This is the club comics, as well as also musicians. And also we've been giving some of that money to art centres. And we've now given it all out. We've actually given everything that we have left. So we now need to build up a new resort. So I hope you enjoy uh, this show and I hope you enjoy all the shows we do. We're probably going to do another uh, COVID-19 um, Q&A as well soon. And any money we get basically goes to helping people in the arts industry and uh, helping the art centres and then also being a resource so we can keep making these shows as well. Good morning. Good afternoon. Here is Matthew Cobb. Hello, Hello Matthew. Matthew. How, are, How you? are you? I'm very well, thank you. Your book has had, uh, I've, I've got it here, I've, I've got the cheap proof copy, the uncorrected uh, proof copy. Uh, I know that the actual hardback version, which is in the shops but unavailable, unavailable in many, many shops at the moment, is uh, is a beautiful, I mean, uh, just to own the book alone, it is a magnificent thing, isn't it? I don't know if you've got a copy oh, there, golden on. inlay. Um, I, I read the book, we've got a, a oh, gold. Sure look, there. shiny, shiny. It is, oh. yes. Oh. It was, uh, it's lovely end papers of neurons. It's got colour print. It's got colour pictures in it somewhere. There you go. Colour <laughs> pictures. Anyway, yes. A bargain. Yeah, that, a that, bargain. That, that was through research, wasn't it? That they realised that people into science communication had magpie-like minds and therefore were drawn to shiny covers as well. <laughs> Look how shiny Brian's is as well. Uh, the But this, this book is... It's taken you a while. This has been has this been the biggest project you've done in terms of um, as as an author, looking both at, first of all, the history of how we came to know what we do know. And then this, you know, the section at the end where the, the third section about how much work there is to be done. Uh, yeah, this is I mean, it took four and a half years something I had to write, to write it. it. So it was pretty hefty. Um, and. It, uh, yeah, it was not really the book I set out to write. I set out to write something different and the original pitch was much simpler and then it kind of got more complicated as it went on and I had to grapple with all sorts of things that I'd either forgotten or didn't, had never learned about. Uh, so it was, yeah, it was quite an experience. What for you was, was the most surprising? Because it is true 
in the publishing industry there are very often books brought out which when you see them placed on the cover of the new scientists suggest that we have had another damascene moment in understanding human consciousness and then by the third paragraph you go oh it seems we're a little bit further away than we thought was there anything that did kind of shock you and go oh, i really thought we had got further with that um well i think the main thing is what, what, it, what it underlined for me is quite how difficult it all is so i, I mean i know that because so I don't even study brains, right? My day job is studying single neurons, single smell cells, and trying to understand how they send information about the smells they detect to the brain. And I know how little we understand about that. So I've got a, a view that is very, very simple compared to people who study human beings. It should be said, I do have a degree in psychology. So I've you know, done my, I have understood, studied these things many years ago. Um, and I was uh, so really it kind of confirmed my suspicions that a lot of the uh, the theories uh, were just that and there was very little empirical evidence to support them. I mean, when I was discussing this with my editor as I was writing it, he said, well, what, what's the explanation? What's the big idea? And I said, well, there isn't really one. You know, we, we haven't got the foggiest. People aren't, can't even agree what a brain is. And he said, we well, can't say that. People want an idea. You know, <laughs> want to say. As it happens, it's turned out people go, well, this is remarkably refreshing. He's actually telling the truth. Nobody's got the foggiest. I love the idea. They go, well, I can't give you an idea, but what if the book looks golden? Brilliant. But <laughs> well, that's much better than having an idea. You've made a shiny book. The, um, it was his about... idea, not mine, to have golden lettering. I was very impressed when I saw it. I, had no, I didn't know until it popped through the letterbox. Yeah, for those of you who haven't uh, read Henry Marsh's really effusive uh, review in the New Statesman, the first seven paragraphs are about the choice of font. It's a really excellent uh, review. <laughs> but also, what about on the other side where I was talking to uh, Anil Seth, who's been on, on Monkey Cage in the past and, and writes very interestingly as a, as a neuroscientist. And at the same time, in the 21st century, there are some leaps that have been made, aren't there, in terms of our, our, our understanding? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the book's divided, well, into into three halves, three parts, but they're not equal, really into two halves and then a little bit at the end, which is about the future. And so the idea is that uh, from the middle of the 20th century onwards, basically that's the present. That's the model we're working with now, that brains are some kind of computational things. They are computing in some way. And what I did was to follow this through in all the various fields, whether it be memory or vision or the location perhaps of certain functions uh, to certain parts of the brain and then see how those ideas have been explored. And we've made absolutely astonishing uh, advances. I mean, you know, the, people shouldn't get the idea this is dissing a whole field. Not at all. Uh, it's actually reveling in this incredible complexity and richness. So, you know, people, you can make a mouse remember something that it never experienced. If you give a mouse a nice experience, you can then change that literally at the flick of a switch by shining light into a nasty experience. The mouse is now afraid of a particular part of a cage rather than being happy about it. So we've got incredible control over this. I mean, it's just a paper, I haven't read it yet, there's a preprint come out from Doris Sow uh, in, in America, and she's now looking at single cells in the face-detecting area of a macaque, of a particular kind of monkey, and it's saying these cells actually seem to be processing the conscious impression the perception of the face that it's looking at and so there's an astonishing degree of, of of precision what's lacking is an overall theory and a way of pulling that together and then trying to explain exactly how this computation is going on because brains aren't computers and neurons are not digital they don't work like a uh, a, a bit of a, a a computer at all and ultimately we've got this problem of trying to understand Rel even relatively simple systems. So one of the themes that comes back is work of a woman called Eve Marder who studies the lobster's stomach. So the lobster's got these 30 neurons in its stomach which produce a kind of pulsing rhythm so the muscles of the stomach can grind up the food. And she's been working for decades on this. She's really smart and yet she can't model that system in a computer and predict what will happen if she takes out one particular neuron or alters it fun its function. So even 30 neurons that aren't a brain, that's still beyond us. And what's great about you mentioning the lobsters is now any fans of Jordan Peterson's book <laughs> will go, oh, good, another lobster-based science examination. It's just what we needed. <laughs> um, 
that what I find fascinating, it, I'm reading your book and others as well, which is when you sometimes read about that idea of the brain in the vat, it was Descartes, wasn't it? Who was the, the brain in the vat. And you go, th- there is kind of a possibility, isn't there, of, of a brain which could be stimulated in a way that the reality would be from, from just the early, some of those, there's inklings of that research when you're talking about the mice, the mouse brain, for instance, that that okay, idea. That's of, what's happening, Robin. How do you know it's not what's happening? How do you know that? You're not just a vat, a brain in a vat, bobbing about. So that's what the lockdown's about. They found that some of the equipment's not working. They can't create such a kind of rich sensory experience. So they've had to just place us in the Right, that's fully explained. Um, <laughs> Matthew, we'll come back to you. We've got loads of questions for you and, and Brian as well. Just before we go over to Brian, Helen, uh, you have a show and tell today. What is your show and tell? Well, yeah, so from, you know, brains and great thoughts, I'm going to go to the brain that does like shiny things. And my show and tell randomly picked off the shelf back here. So this is um, a power shell from New Zealand. Now, we're all used to the idea of mollusk shells that have these beautiful iridescent patterns on the inside. The great thing about power, sh- so power is what the Americans call uh, abalone. Uh, abalone. Um, um, but if you t- what happens, what happens this is the inside, inside of the shell. Of the shell. Um, um, but if you but turn, if you turn it, over, it over, the Maori and others have um, developed a habit of polishing off all the, the sort of seafloor looking stuff the the disguise on the outside and what you can see is that the patterns are even better underneath and um, so this iridescent layer it's not there because anything is going to see it right there's no evolutionary reason for it to be visually interesting um well, i do love the idea that the inner layer the one that you dig you have that no one is supposed to see is even more beautiful than than the obvious thing that washes up on the beach but the interesting thing about this material is that it's uh, they're platelets in here they're little platelets of calcium carbonate embedded in organics but they're incredibly strong and the same structure that generates these patterns which depend on temperature and genetics and all kinds of things people are actually studying it because it's so strong and so flexible it's a bit like um, a bit like bricks sort of glued together with cement but anyway so there's all this pretty structure in there so I was looking at my shelf this morning and I thought I would love to share this um, power shell with everyone, everyone. so there you so go there you go that is the tenacity of beauty is a wonderful thing isn't it that is uh, that's that's a, a, a beautiful object that's what I always love about that that thing that every object however sometimes not like that but sometimes sometimes banal if you look close enough and you start when we had Chris okay. Jackson on the other week and talking about geology and sometimes the simplest looking rock and then you start to get the story of that journey over you know 4.6 yeah. billion and this years is a or snail so that what people think of snails and go ew snail you know yuck but um, this is a marine snail and and so even in those creatures that we think of as yucky because we haven't got the imagination to see that they're you know they're a bit more interesting than that even in something that people would think ick first of all there are marine snails which is cool all by itself um yeah and then they've got all of this hidden inside them so i love this well i know brian doesn't find the mickey he's a bon viveur he consumes them by the tub um brian, brian the, the... <laughs> actually because i'm interested because if if there's no evolutionary no evolutionary reason why those colors exist why the the, the structure looks so beautiful it is the suggestion then that it purely is a byproduct of strength and what, what's the selection um power or effect what, what's selecting for that kind of structure so it, so it seems to be so the reason obviously for the, the iridescence is that these little platelets are um thin sheets and the spacing between the sheets is similar to that of visible light and the reason it's strong is that um the protein in between provides flexibility um and those sheets provide rigidity so you're right that there's no reason but what i think there is is if you look at how a cell can lay things down it's going to come up with platelets that are about that big um and then it's how you use platelets to to engineer strength and not all um so there's two ways that that mollusks lay down stuff on the inside and it's only some of them the oysters you know things that make mother of pearl that that do it this way so i don't know it was an interesting question though of how because it is a coincidence, but it's also something where the, the, the material properties you need for strength, which are basically um, a it's a compact it's a material made of two things. Right. Uh, you need rigid bits and you need soft bits. And it's that the arrangement of them produces it happens at a scale, which is the same as the scale of visible light. So, yeah, I don't know. It'd be interesting. I wonder if you could recreate this, whether there's a maximum in the strength at that size scale or whether it's all just luck. Don't know. 
or I suppose maybe it's a question, some question, isn't it? Isn't it? Other than the biology, as you said, maybe cells are of the order of the wavelength of light, and so they build structures which are of the order of the wavelength of visible light. I, yeah, I, I mean, it, it seems, seems to me like it's, it's one of those things that are called a spandrel. So these are the bits when you've got a, if you're having an arch holding up a building, you end up with these kind of quarter, these triangles between the arches, which um, in the Renaissance people period, people then painted in. And so it looks like they're there for a reason, but they're not. They're simply a byproduct of other things. So this mm. is what people are called spandrels. Bit of architectural history for you there, but that's the great that's that's the Oscar Wilde well, thing, isn't it? That you know, beauty is meant to be useless, isn't it? Beauty itself is, you know, the, 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 and the Ruskin quote have nothing in your home apart from that which is practical and that which is beautiful. So uh, there we are, the two cultures. We just thought we'd merge them for a while. Um, Brian, I just want to pick up on something you were saying because I think it's worth having this conversation again for those who didn't see the Andrew Marr show. I'm sure many people on social media have found themselves in kind of arguments where when they've been talking about the handling of the current crisis and they've just had some reply, but they've just been following the science. They've just been following the science. And I thought what you were talking about on Andrew Marr this morning was, was an important point about a misunderstanding of when we sometimes just see follow the science thrown out as, as a rebuttal. Yeah, I mean, there, there are a series of ways we could talk about this subject. I mean, one is a very simple point that um, it, scientific advice to government comes from many quarters. And as I said on the on the Andrew Marr show, the thing about this virus, and you know, Matthew will comment more widely, I suppose, on this from the biology, but we've only known about it for four months. It's only been in humans for, what, five months or something like that. So we've made tremendous progress. But I think it's true to say we don't have a full understanding by any means of how it behaves, that we don't have treatments that have been shown to work, we don't have a vaccine yet. And so the advice from scientists is going to be, it's going to be from many quarters, from social scientists, behavioural scientists and epidemiologists and so on. And it's surely true, as with all scientific advice to government, that ultimately, therefore, government has to take the overview. That's, you know, we, are, we do, after all, live in a democracy. Scientists do not decide how people should behave, and rightly so. And so there's that level of point that we should make, that it's not, I don't think it's appropriate for, for, for government, that the people who take the decisions to do what they did, which is take a decision, which they have to do. And I must say, it's tremendously difficult. I don't envy any of them, and I'm not criticising any of them. Very difficult. But you, but they have to acknowledge, I think, that they're making decisions. They are making them based on the evidence and the advice and so on, and what you might call politics or judgment. I mean, and so that that's point number one. But point number two, which was the deeper point I was making, is that there is no such thing as the science, particularly in an area like this, where you, where you've got great uncertainty, active research, not because it's not because scientists don't know anything, you know, it's because this is an area that it's new and it's unknown. And that's what scientists do. They, as, as Feynman said in that great essay, the most valuable thing probably that a scientist can teach a non-scientist is this incredible experience of the unknown, right? Because that's where you work, right? We, we are research scientists. And, and so he, I think he said, I can't remember his wording, you might remember it, but it's something like we have a very great experience with the unknown and that's perhaps the most valuable thing. And then he goes on to make a different point, which I think is a very beautiful point. It doesn't really apply in this case because of the seriousness of the unknown. Um, but he celebrates the idea that there are things yet to be discovered mm -hmm. rather than fear. He says doubt is to be embraced rather than fear. Now, that's another point. It's slightly you know, wrong to make that point in this case, because we desperately need to know. So it's not to be, the unknown is not to be celebrated in this case. So I think there's, there are many, many complex um, layers to this argument. And of course, as you said, I, I had about one minute to mention it yeah. on Mar, but I think I got the point across that my main point was that, that it's, it's just not really appropriate to say, well, we are just following the science, because there isn't such a thing as the the science in this case. But it's really interesting. So in the past um, few weeks, uh, a friend of mine has been reading out Daniel Defoe's Journal of a Plague Year, which is talking about the Great Plague of London in 1665, whenever it was. And what's interesting is that, so they don't have any of the science, but they have all of the same politics. 
and it's really it's really fascinating to read because it's it could be the modern day arguments about who's responsible for spreading who makes the decisions like everything is identical except for the science and and it's really instructive i think because in a sense um they're left with a lot of the same decisions made for some of the same reasons. Um, we have much better tools, but they had the same, they had humans and it's the humans that are the same, even though the disease and the knowledge of it is different. Yeah. I, I've kind of taken a, a, a vow not to um, um, try and get too excited about the latest discovery with, with the virus because it's just so confusing. Uh, so if you just think of the basic things we know, old people get it, young people apparently don't die of it, or much less likely to. Uh, men are much more likely to get it and to die from it than women. And though, and also the, the, the effects on, on BAME populations, which are repeated throughout the world. So what is going on there? there are those three basic facts we don't have any explanation for at the moment. So, uh, I mean, I think it, it, Brian's absolutely right. There is no single answer. And the arguments that will have taken place inside the, the SAGE committee, I mean, I think it'd be very useful if we could see what those arguments were, because we will then see that there wasn't a view. There'll have been multiple views with different, seeing what, especially when you're dealing with something with real political consequences, not like what we all deal with, which is, you know, <laughs> it's just intellectually fascinating, but it doesn't actually make any difference. Uh, for, this is actually really, really serious. And I, again, I agree with Brian. I mean, I'm sure we've all had a hard time being able to think in this current mess. And then there are people who are actually having to think really hard about the science. And then also uh, the politicians who've got to come up with a decision. Um, and I'm, I'm very glad I'm not involved in that at all, because I think it must be very, very hard. And it is, it is worth, I should say, there are certain people on social media who are in this area and it's worth finding that people like dr yep. rupert bill because they are putting up very good they're giving you a lot of different pieces of information and their information which they will only put up if it has some level of reliability even if it's the reliability of doubt as it often is but i think it's it's really worth as opposed to newspapers and columnists and and those kind of things right we're going to move deeper into the universe and we will we will come back and, and we're, we're going to as i said uh, i think trent and i are going to sort another uh, special with various uh, virologists etc and people working in this field at the moment um i'll start off with you brian this is from james if a photon traveling at light speed experiences no passage of time how can it make sense that it takes light eight minutes to reach us from the sun that's a fascinating that's a fa thing that when you get to a certain scale time is just yeah so so can you explain to james that idea yeah it's, it's a it's a basic property of, of relativity so basically einstein's special theory of relativity is what we're talking about now um and it's a property of the fabric of the universe, which we call space-time, which is kind of often described as a mixture of space and time. Um, essentially, the point is that the way we measure distances in space-time, so that's the distance between things that happen. So, so technically, we call them events. So let's say that, as I said on, my live, on our live shows, Robin, that, that an event might be um, your alarm clock going off when you wake up in the morning. That's something that happened by some definition, somewhere in space and somewhere in time. And another event later on might be you switching, switching the light off when you go to bed that evening. So that's another event. Now, the distance between those two events, not surprisingly, depends on the path that you take, right? I mean, that's, a, that's how we think about distances in space. Um, but the thing is that light takes a different path between those events to the path that we take um, because it's massless, actually, because they're massless particles. So it takes so the, the distance in space-time between those two events is different for people who take a different path. So that's the origin of this idea that um, moving clocks run slow. It says, you know, that, that idea that if you fly off to Alpha Centauri in a rocket and come back again, then you'll be younger than the person who stayed on Earth. But the, the whole point is that you're taking different paths between events in space-time. And it turns out that... The geometry of space-time itself is such that uh, photons, so light, massless particles, travel a path that has zero length between events. So that's the, the, the counterintuitive geometry of space-time. And um, by the way, the, the, the other last thing I'll say is that the distance you travel between two events is the time measured on your watch. 
So that's another way of saying it, actually. So if you say, how far did I travel over space-time between getting up this morning and going to bed at night? Uh, the answer is, if you started to stopwatch when you got up and stopped it when you went to bed, that, and it said 18 hours and 4 minutes and 3 seconds, that is the distance you travelled between those events. So that's the, the way that Einstein's theory works. And, and to finally answer the question, so the, and the distance travelled by a photon is, is zero. It is such a. I find. I remember when we did a show about Einstein, you know, and looking at it, and that first point. Where... I mean, the, the other, the other very simple thing to say is that the, the, the. Um, so the point is that we're we're talking about we're looking at things from different vantage points. So you're asking the the vantage point of from the vantage point of the photon. Uh, then, if we say this famous result that no time passes, so the distance to any two points from the view of a photon is zero. Um, but the distance from someone who watches it is is the vantage point from us on the Earth, right? So we're saying, um, what's the distance we travelled from the emission event on the Sun to the reception event in our eyes? And the answer to that will be eight minutes. Right. The good thing is, Matthew, your question is it's in a different field, field but it's still that because I always find that thing we're thinking about that whatever speed you're traveling, your neural processes, your metabolism, everything changes with that speed. So, you know, that thing where as I watch all of my relatives getting very, very old as I move at incredible speed away from the planet Earth and I'm the experience I have. But the fact that that to me is an incredible counter instinctual thing as well. Um but this is now, does colour only happen in brains is the question for you, Matthew. And again, I think when people find out these kind of ideas that the, the redness of red is not a, a primary property, that seems to be a remarkable thing. So so tell us about colour and sensory experience. Which ones can we say? Yeah, well, this is this is your perception. Oh, crikey. Uh, <laughs> I told you it was going to be a tricky one, didn't I? Well, I mean, colour's real. So let's start that. So it's not it's not imaginary. Right. So there are differences in the wavelengths that are absorbed by matter. And so, for example, um, green leaves are green because they've absorbed all the energy except the green wavelength, which then gets thrown back. And that's what we perceive when you see something as green. Now, different eyes from different animals can perceive different wavelengths. So lots of animals can see in what in, to us is invisible in the ultraviolet wavelength so they can see things that are beyond that dark blue purple at the end of the rainbow there is something at the end of the rainbow it's not gold it's unimaginable for us variations that we're unable to see and similarly at the other end we can't see it we can see a very very narrow part of the uh, electromagnetic spectrum but as to the perception of it and whether redness is the same for me as it is for another person, that's much more difficult to tell. And there are there are different arguments about quite how confident we can we can be about that. We know from example with people with who are what we call color blind. So if you're red green color blind, it means you can't distinguish red and green. They look the same to you, and that's kind of unimaginable if you can distinguish them. Them. And the opposite is equally true. Imagining what those different colours might be like is something that's very, very mysterious if you can't perceive them. That isn't an answer to the question. It really does bother people, though, doesn't it? I made a series about the physics of colour a few years ago. Yeah, that's great. We saw a BBC Four recently. And fully 50%, I got hundreds of questions, and fully 50% of them were, is the red that you see the same as the red that I see? It really bothers people, the idea that it might not be. Um, and I would say, of course, it's not the same because you're, there's this thing called colour constancy. Your brain is adjusting all the time that if you walk into a room which is lit differently, uh, the, the wavelengths coming to your eye are different, but your brain interprets that a banana is still yellow. And that's why that image of the dress a few years ago bothered everyone so much because their brains were adjusting for lighting, making different assumptions about the lighting. And it absolutely showed that they were all making it up in their heads. But it really bothered people because it matters so much because if you can't trust that someone else sees the same thing that you see, what else can you trust, right? It, it, re it really does get to people, that one. So in terms of perception, then, uh, in, in terms of the spectrum that we can see, we basically is, is that would we is it 
possible to ju just say that that has evolved because this is what we need to see that there will be other creatures that their evolved senses they see a different world because that is what is required for, for so, so in terms of through evolution our ability to perceive is based on our ability to survive and therefore something else might have a totally different picture because of the world or the environment it lives in yeah and it, it also relates to the signals so if you think about it are there are there any animals that can detect radio not, not as far as I know. Ah, uh, you know what would it be like if you if you had uh, a radio if you could detect radio signals? I mean, you'd have to have a huge, great big receptor things, you know, like an aerial or an antenna, uh, you know, dish on your head to be able to pick them up. And there's nothing that's emitting those signals naturally, so there's no selection pressure to actually be able to detect it. Yeah, um, I remember once um, someone saying that if. It, you know, you could see, you could imagine an animal that could see the radio right. emission from the galaxies, but its eyes would be as big as Jodrell Bank. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> problem. Uh, the, um, we're just getting some questions in from the live, live feed, feed as well. As well. So we got, I'm going to come back to the ones that have been emailed in. Uh, and uh, this is, um, oh, someone wants to know whether your cat is real or a prop cat. Obviously, it's moving around. So that's just a very simple question. Or I say simple, but their perception of your cat would be different <laughs> to your perception. Of Poor you. cat was having a nice nap. This is Harry. <laughs> say hello to everybody, Harry. He's very um, rotund. Oh, you should never show a physicist a cat. You know the rules. Um, <laughs> this is uh, this one's for from. Uh, I think this is for you, Helen, because this is picking up on last week. Last week we were talking about the longevity of bubbles, and someone has been thinking about this for the whole week, and they wanted to know. They said, uh, "Can we count what about a bubble that exists inside a pumice stone? Why is that no longer defined as a bubble?" So uh, there is there is. It's one of those cases where there is a scientific definition of a bubble, and then there's a general popular definition of a bubble and the scientific definition of a bubble is a gas surrounded by liquid so you have it's both the gas and the liquid it's really important for the properties of bubbles that it's not just about the gas most of their properties come from the interaction between the gas that's inside the bubble and the liquid on the outside so 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 that so but there is a popular definition of a bubble which is a a pocket, a pocket of gas is that's what I would call it inside a solid. So when it comes to pumice stone, you know, what's happening there is that you have a lava that is coming out. And as it comes out of the earth, the pressure drops. And so dissolved gases that were inside the liquid, as it just like when you take the top of a bottle of a lemonade, they form bubbles, the gas comes out of solution, it forms separate bubbles, and then they are bubbles because it's still liquid. But when it goes solid, uh, like an like an aero bar, and they're trapped. Then I would say that that is now a pocket of gas rather than a bubble. Right. Could, that's you, a... could you say it was a fossil bubble? Um, I think if you wanted to stretch literary description, <laughs> you so I mean, the the good ones are the ones that were in ice, right? That have actually come out. Uh, you know, that are in glaciers that never were bubbles at any point, but they look like bubbles because they're trapped in uh, a transparent ice, and that you can get. Um, samples of past atmospheres in them trapped but they they, they weren't round to start with so they've never been a bubble but they look awfully like bubbles you so we'll do, we'll, do, we'll, we'll, do, we'll deal with fobbles more next week matthew the um this is uh this is from ed ed would like to know how much of an overlap is there in, in the sort of quantum physics that brian has been talking about before and the real world physics helen does so that's an interesting thing that the idea of a, of, of a nice neat dividing line between <laughs> quantum <laughs> physics and and then whether the ones you know newtonian physics so so brian how do we work out those kind of divisions of understanding well, there isn't really a division at a fundamental level. Um, we, you know, everything is quantum, um, and uh, you know, the, the idea, the, the point is though, and I think um, we've mentioned Sean Carroll several times. I think he's written some great, but he always makes this point that that we're talking about different levels of description. Um, so if we're talking about atoms, then it is necessary. To, to to understand quantum mechanics and do quantum mechanics this goes all the way up to even even you know as helen works in for example the way materials emit and absorb light that's all quantum mechanics you need to understand quantum mechanics but really if you're trying to talk about a, a living system then it's not appropriate to talk about the, the atoms and molecules as matthew said you know we, we don't even know how to, if you said simulate a neuron starting with the the building blocks of environment no chance and it's not there's no points it's completely pointless 
so so I would say that so quantum mechanics in physics it it is the framework the basic framework within we understand the universe in in a, in a deep sense however it is not necessary or appropriate to apply it to things like living systems but the tools you use in the two cases are very different so for so in all physics problems you have all the forces in the universe, right? You have all kinds of electromagnetic forces, you have all you know, gravity, you have a whole list. And what happens in practice is that if you want to predict what's going on, what you do as a physicist is you rank all those things and then you start at the top and you think about the top one, the most important one, and then you kind of add extra ones as you go down. And the models and, and the tools you need to do that are different for classical physics. So most of it, like I kind of think of physics as split into two halves there's there's the bits at either end which you could say crudely are the bits that brian does there's quantum mechanics and cosmology right big bits and small bits that join together around the back if you're in a black hole and then there's all this stuff in the middle but the stuff in the middle is about complexity it's not about fundamental principles we've dealt with all of those what it's about is the complexity you get when you have lots of these forces that are all active at the same time so instead of just being able to say we're going to worry about gravity uh you know and perhaps uh you know, radiative pressure to deal with a star. You have to worry about five or six different things and they're all kind of jostling with each other for which takes priority. And it's that complexity, which means there's a whole other area of physics in the middle, which is, uh, I would call the mesoscale, I guess, or the messy bit in the middle, which is generally what I call it, where it's 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 complicated in a different way. The, hi the hierarchy is somewhere else completely, but you need different tools to study it. Uh, and of course, I've got a chip on my shoulder because I think a lot of people don't think of physics when they think of that stuff but it absolutely is physics and actually some of it's harder than cosmology quite a lot of it turbulence is definitely harder than cosmology <laughs> oh thank heavens for the fact we're not in the same room um this one's for, for sorry this one completely i mean the point is as we've talked about um complexity when you start getting huge numbers of of molecules and atoms or or people right <laughs> interacting together then you need a whole different you, you use different mathematics you need different approximations and and so it's, helen's absolutely right there are there no i go even further and say that there's no i don't like this description which often gets made of, of fundamental physics against applied physics or whatever I, I don't think i think that just misunderstands the nature of these problems which are just different problems um, Matthew, we're going to move back to brains now. This is from Stephen's daughter, Elise, and she would, she like, would to like to know, how do we get the two brains, one rational and one emotional? I'd like to know, is there any... Oh, so there we go. So why is it... That, so Elise is wondering where it seems sometimes that like we have different brains within our own head. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's, there's two things there. One, our everyday experience is of, um, you know, say, wanting to do something that you may want to do very impulsively and then saying well no i perhaps shouldn't do that because it wouldn't be very good for me or whatever so we've got these competing uh, desires and ways of thinking in our head and that's a bit different from saying actually bits about your brain so people do get taught and there's a lot of pop psychology books which would say you've got a left brain and a right brain they're doing completely different things that i'm afraid just isn't true there's one thing that is different as far as we know on the two sides of the brain and that's what i'm doing now and that's speech and speech is controlled by this bit of your brain on the left-hand side. And that is different. But all the psychological things we talk about are, in fact, distributed across the brain. Um, and so although people often talk about left brain, right brain, often then gets blurred into male-female differences. Uh, I mean, that just isn't, isn't true. Now, one of the interesting things is, well, why, why have we got two sides to our brain anyway? Why are these, all brains kind of got these two hemispheres, these two lumps? And that goes back to actually what a brain is, which is ultimately just a load of neurons uh, at the head of an animal. It's partly what makes a head. And when we animals first developed what's called bilateral symmetry, so they've got two sides. So you've maybe got, say, an eye patch on one side and on the other that means you can detect light coming you can detect a predator you can get away and then the neurons control getting signals from those receptors tend to get together and you now know i'm going somewhere i've got a front and a back you've got head and tail so one of the mysteries of biology is this this moment when you get bilateral symmetry 
So you get two sides to your body. And at the same time, you get head tail asymmetry. So your head and your tail are very different. You've got a mouth and you've got an anus. And those are kind of key steps in the evolution of life. But ultimately, we've got those two sides because way, way back, you're simply wanting to know which side uh, of the environment a stimulus is coming from, either to escape a food, escape becoming food or to find food. And there's some wonderful experiments, aren't there, as well, with the, the corpus callosum when they were the period of time where they, an operation to sever the, sever the corpus callosum, I think because of, it was predominantly due to things like uh, seizures, wasn't it? Yeah. So this is this is some of those bizarre things that are found. This kind of gives rise to this idea of there being two sides to our brain. So in the 1950s and 1960s, a lot of people who suffered from extremely severe epilepsy, the only way of dealing with it before drugs became available was actually to chop the two sides of your brain in half to separate all those connections and people who've had this happen to them behave apparently perfectly normally and then cunning psychologists realized that in fact the two sides of their brain each had a different mind presence in there that had slightly different characters uh the one the right hand side of the brain uh can't speak because it hasn't got control of this part of the brain. And the left-hand side of the brain can speak, so it could answer questions. The right-hand side of the brain and the left-hand side of the brain sometimes took different attitudes about moral questions, if you ask the, these two things they had in their mind. But the key point is not to think, okay, well, I've got these two bits of my head, bits of my mind in normal circumstances, because normally it's all integrated. And what's happened is the operation shows that the mind in some mysterious, amazing way emerges from all those neurons. And because the neurons are slightly different on either side, if you separate them, you end up with these slightly different, rather odd um, things, presences, minds, who knows what we can call them. It's, it is one of the weirdest experiments it's not an experiment it's a an, an operation it wasn't done to in, intensive intend intendedly for that to happen uh one of the most extraordinary findings uh in the history of science i think and these very very brave patients who you know literally went under the knife and then they were, their symptoms were relieved which was the point of it all but they also emerged with these very strange heads it's that remarkable thing, isn't it, where so, where the left brain, brain is doing up the buttons of a shirt and the right brain is undoing it, and that that is some yeah. of those examples are are, are just kind yeah. Of, yeah yeah fascinating. How well, well, that's when, the fasc when they start off when they initially happens, they sometimes have uh, the two sides of the head of these people will have an argument as to whether they should be putting their trousers on or not, on. so their arms would be kind of struggling. Eventually, it all calmed down. Yeah, why do we come out? Sorry, Brian. Close that, close that. I mean, it, this operation isn't a complete severing, is it? Can't be, can it? Because you can't well, sever. There are, are subcortical layers, so it's going right, very, very deep down. So most of the, most of the connection between the two sides of the brain is yeah, is separated. But okay. there are subcortical layers. Yeah. So you so, have two complete kind of you know bits of your brain. So in some sense, is the the brain work? Does it make? reconnect well, with its other half over time no reconnect down through no yeah. it doesn't doesn't seem to get any better or worse it's just once this happens then that's that's the way it is and they're i mean they're, they're all they're, very they're all very old now they're all in their 70s and people don't do the operation anymore so we've had this kind of window of insight and uh, it'll be passing soon but it is absolutely extraordinary and there's some wonderful footage of Alan Alder did a great documentary with uh, looking it's at some of those. It, it, it have to find that. I, I wish I knew what it was on online. We'll try and put up a link uh, on this afterwards. But it's I, really beautiful. Yeah. And Alan Alder is always a joy to watch. Anyway, this is from David just being sent in now. Uh, this is for you, Brian. I think really sometimes heat is described as electromagnetic radiation, sometimes as the jiggliness of atoms, which is correct. Is it electromagnetic radiation or is it jiggliness or is it a little bit of both? So you're talking about one of the most um, difficult to teach areas of physics, which is thermodynamics. So, so what what is temperature? You know, so when people say uh, heat is, what what were the two questions? So yeah, is it electromagnetic radiation or is it jigglingness? 
There's a lot of energy. So in a sense, if you're talking about temperature, broadly speaking, you can if you've got um, a, a liquid in a glass, let's say, then you can you can say what's the temperature of the glass and of uh, the liquid. It's related to the uh, average speed of the jiggling of the molecules in in some sense. But it, but I keep saying in some sense because it actually gets tremendously complicated very quickly. But when you if you read a textbook, there's the on. Um, just if you, if you go and get any book, the, Peter Atkins, the, the great um, Oxford chemist, wrote a brilliant introdu- little introductory book, that, which you can get on Kindle for about a pound, I think. And one of those short introductions to thermodynamics. And you read that and the care you have to go through to define what you mean by temperature and what it is and its relation to entropy and order and information and all this stuff is tremendously subtle. But broadly speaking, yes. So temperatures are... Uh, you could say it's a measure of the 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 amount that atoms are jiggling around. So the higher the temperature of the liquid, the faster the atoms are jiggling. And um, well, I think when you said about light, um, I think you're probably referring to what's called color temperature. And, and Helen will comment on this as well. I think, but color temperature is you're talking about the wavelengths of light that emit are emitted from a hot object. And um, so, so when you say the when if you're a photographer and you say it's a the color temperature is six thousand degrees, let's say. Um, what you're talking about is the 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 kind of uh, broadly speaking, or, or correctly to say, that as you go hotter, then the wavelengths that are emitted uh, tend to get smaller, and the energy of the light emitted tends to get higher. So that means you go to the bluer end of the spectrum. So you've got something that's not that's hot enough, so you can see it glowing, but it's not too hot, then it'll glow in the red. And as you as you increase temperature, so there's more energy in that object, then the light emitted will go to the blue end of the spectrum. So that I think is what you're talking about with light. But it is the case, I think, to make the distinction in the, the question, question that the once it's electromagnetic radiation, it's electromagnetic radiation all by itself. It's not heat. So the thing that is distinctive about it is that the mixture of wavelengths you have in it tell you it probably came from something with a temperature. Yeah. But once they're traveling, they're just electromagnetic waves. And it's the sol- it's the object itself. It, it is the, the statistical movement of the um, atoms and molecules within it and how they share energy movement energy with each other that defines temperature. So once it's once the energy has left it and has gone off, it's then just electromagnetic uh, electromagnetic radiation. If you measured one photon of that, it could have come from anywhere. Um, so at, at that point, I would say it's not heat. Well, we've got another question now for you, which I think is one of the hotly contended areas uh, in, 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 in biology, really, which is the belly button. Uh, don't worry, it's not do Adam and Eve have belly buttons. Uh, this is from uh, Helen's youngest child. Uh, and her youngest child would like to know how many animals that live in the ocean have belly buttons? Oh, well, so ble- so uh, this is not my child, by the way. Uh, different sorry, sorry, um, so otherwise belly- she could have asked you earlier. You're right. It's, uh- so a belly button is something that placental mammals have. Um, so the belly button is where the umbilical cord connects. And so in order to have a belly button, I think you need to be an umbilical mammal. And that means that the things in the ocean that have them will be uh, the dolphins, uh, whales, which were mammals, which were land mammals and have all the organs that land mammals have, and then went back into the ocean and still give live birth so i don't think there are any and then and sharks have live birth but i don't think they have a, an equivalent of an umbilical cord so i don't think that they will have a belly button but although i've been very close to quite a lot of sharks i have to confess not having looked in great detail um so yeah so it's the mammals in the ocean that will have belly buttons well we've just got thank and you seals for that. oh seals yes that's right yeah the uh Thank you very, very much, much, by the way, everyone who, who sent those questions in. We've got a few more questions. Just a reminder, we have a tip jar at the bottom. We're basically we're trying to build up a resource for uh, uh, the funding of people in the performing arts who uh, at the moment have kind of not merely fallen on hard times, but find it quite hard to access any kind of way to get money and also the art centres. And also we're trying to make sure that we've got the resources to keep making these shows uh, for free because we're doing about uh, 11 or 12 shows uh, quite often uh, a week. And just to keep all of that going as well and to make sure. So don't you don't feel under no pressure to donate any money whatsoever. However, I realise many people are in a precarious situation. But if you do think, but you know what, I'm still doing all right, uh, then um, if you fancy it, why not? And uh, so this is a question about pandas. So I'm going to throw this one to you, uh, Matthew. I know this is um, uh, this is from uh, Jack. Jack would like to know. um, I read recently that red pandas have been discovered to be two separate species, Chinese and Himalayan red pandas. What, if anything, are the implications of that? Also, I remember from school learning that a definition of species involved animals 
animals that can breed. But as far as I'm aware, the two species can breed, at least in captivity. Was I taught wrongly at school? So the species divide, another big question, question I, suppose, I suppose, really, in biology. Yeah, so uh, basically taxonomists, people who define species, are div divided into two groups, as it should be, uh, and they're either splitters or lumpers. They either put lots of different groups together or they want to have them all kind of separate. Um, and that is especially true for paleontology, so dealing with fossils, because we don't actually know what those animals or plants, how they interacted. But the biological definition for a currently ex living organism would exact be exactly that. Can they successfully interbreed? Now, then you've got a problem with there are some populations that are separate geographically, so they never meet in the wild. But when we put them together, they can, in fact, produce fertile offspring, not just an offspring. Uh, but fertile offspring that can carry on reproducing. So technically, they wouldn't be uh, different species. But I think when they are clearly separated geographically, uh, then I think that's probably OK. That having been said, what difference does it make? I mean, there's been a lot of argument about this, for example, over the giraffe. How many giraffe species are there? Three, are there seven? Are what are often called subspecies, really different species? Um, and people often use DNA studies to try and demonstrate this. The problem is you can't really show from DNA whether it's a species or two groups are two different species or not. But the argument is that by focusing attention on how many there are or differences between them, you may be actually able to encourage or help conservation efforts. So there may be... Uh, not some you know politics but there may be that may help encourage splitters who want to identify two different groups as being completely different species uh because that would mean well we've got to do everything we can to save them we can't just think oh well to be honest it's all the same thing it doesn't really matter um thank you very much this uh near the end now i'm, I'm going to ask this you might have an opinion on this as well. I'll start with you, though, Brian. This is about um, Elon Musk. Many people will have seen in the last week uh, the satellites that have been going up. Uh, it's been a fantastic week, in fact, for the night sky generally. Uh, and uh, this person would like to know, I haven't got a name for this, uh, which was um, Elon Musk plans to send up 12,000 satellites. Are we any closer to having a solution to clearing up obsolete space junk in our orbit? Brian, I'll start with you. Um no, I don't think we are. It's thought about because it, it, it is dangerous and or expensive. So it's dangerous if you're an astronaut. Um, I think the International Space Station moves quite often to, to get out of the way of space junk. We, we track it all. We know where it is. Um, but of course, you can have problems if two things bump into each other. There's a rather random spreading of all that stuff. And you only need flecks of paint to, to damage the space station or to take out a communication satellite. You know, things are moving that fast and with that, that much energy in orbit. So, no, we, we don't really have, a, I think, a, a global agreement. I, I'm not, I mean, there's a lot of controversy, and I think rightly so, about the, the um, SpaceX satellites. I mean, at, on one level, they're, they're doing a good thing. They're providing Internet access, which is very important to people. But on another level, they are at the moment anyway, um, causing real problems for our view of the night sky, which is a natural resource. And the question of who is who is responsible, who who is the voice of the, the conservationist, I suppose, in this sense, in the sense of conserving our view of the of the night sky, it's not clear to me. So so I think that there are there are big questions around international management and regulation of who can put what into orbit and where and how we deal with problems when they occur as they inevitably will. Yeah, and I think if you if you speak to the people who track satellites, and of course, of course there, are more, there are more and more of them as there are more and more bits of things in space, they say it's it's more or less a question of when and not if. Like because all it takes is one accident. And the more I think at the moment there are is something like five or six thousand things in orbit that are supposed to be there and elon musk and the people who are talking about CubeSats and all those sorts of things all these really cool bits of technology they're not they're talking about adding tens of thousands at a time which is more than double what we've got already in a single batch if you like and so and the thing is that there does become a limit to the amount you can track so that's one thing there's there's the point at which 
it only takes one collision of just the wrong sort that nudges something into something else that nudges something into three more collisions that nudges something into a hundred more collisions and, and you basically you've taken down the entire global satellite system not to panic anybody i'm sure someone's writing a disaster movie about this already but the other thing that matters actually is the bandwidth that they use so satellites communicate with earth and with each other at specific wavelengths and um, there are already earth observation satellites in orbit that use some of those wavelengths to detect things about our planet for example um, and some of those are getting crowded out in the same way that the astronomers are getting crowded out by satellites all these new little satellites using the same starting to push into their frequency edge frequency band and knocking out the sensitivity of some of our weather measurements so there's a very severe you know, in the, at the moment, it's going to happen because, like Brian said, no one seems to be in charge. No one's going to stop them. Um, we are going to lose some of our weather observations if the rates, you know, if all the, the CubeSat and Elon Musk and all these people keep putting this stuff up. We're cutting down the satellite bandwidth available for other things. So there are quite a few problems associated with this. And um, it isn't at all clear how to fix it. Because if one of them goes, if this starts happening, we rely on satellites so much now that we, we do have a real problem. So yeah, it's very much, and you, all these people who are keen on tech have got are so mixed about it because they're like, oh, it's really cool because it's cool new technology. And then there's like, but, 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 but. And yeah, yep. there's nowhere really for that to go. Someone has to start making decisions. Oh, I'm so I'm really annoyed that we've actually, actually run, out run out of time because there's still so many. I'll just say, if we can do this quickly, I don't know if we'll be able to. This thank you so much, everyone. We've had so many questions. Sorry we didn't get to, uh, to deal with all of those questions. Uh, Dr. Carl can answer some of them on Tuesday as well. Then uh, this one I just like. This is from Melanie. She wants to know what's the most fascinating thing you've accidentally stumbled over, learnt about each other's fields. And I think that's because I know that certainly uh, Brian and, and, and Matthew, you've worked together, haven't you, on 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 a project? And are those moments of going in and we've certainly had that on monkey cage occasionally where something you know biological based and you've kind of there are those wonderful moments where your mind can still be blown yeah i, I we, yeah i worked with uh, matthew who's very kind to work with me on wonders of life years ago um, which is one of the most enjoyable if not the most enjoyable thing i've done in terms of television because i uh, learned a huge amount about biology that i'd never known or even the basics i'd forgotten and the thing that stayed with me that when I realized that really, um, and Matthew will probably correct me, but what I loved was this sense in which the our ecosystem, right, the 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 environment, the living environment, is is like is essentially one great genetic database, and, it, and it's it's subdivided off into little bits, as Matthew was talking about species and things like that. But it, when you realize that the whole thing. Uh, carries in, in a sense, in a sense, a single, it's a single book of information that's subdivided up into little bits, and it was really a, a, important to me because it tells you that it's a, a, again our lack of understanding. It tells you that it's very difficult to identify what will happen if you damage or move or change one bit of it. It's the the, the absolute interconnectedness of our ecosystem and of life on Earth was was something that I hadn't thought about. I think uh, I think for me again working on that that series what it stressed to me as having failed my uh, O level physics uh, was quite how significant I mean I knew it but talking to Brian discussing things how significant the physical framing of evolution is and, and, and life on earth so i remember a couple of things you asked me well you know what's the limit on how big how tall a tree could go and i didn't know and you worked out i mean i'm not sure it's, it's entirely true but there is a limit even if you have the strongest tree possible and that limit is the bonds in the water molecule <laughs> they, they come a certain point at which it would break and that is just fantastic or going back to color of plants i think you said to me why aren't plant leaves black because, of course, you get all the energy. What, so, I mean, I, my hand way, the answer is, well, they get too hot and the proteins would denature. I have no idea if that's true or not. But that physical, the, the fact that evolution could do virtually anything, but only within the physics framework of frameworks of the laws of physics. And that, I think, is what really, and that's why I think it's such a good series, because the two things were completely intermingled at every step. And we had a physicist view on on biology, which was I found immensely stimulating. Yeah, I, I love this right at the end of the last episode. I think think about all these things that we're about, and then there's a little piece where I just said that the that if you look at a blade of grass, it's it's pretty much true that most of the history of life on Earth is written into it, which I think is just this idea of where 
of the information storage system of life is really worth thinking about. There's not a great deal of difference, right? And, and you, see, you know, between a blade of grass, is that it's broadly speaking, the information database is pretty is pretty shared between us, isn't it? Yep. Helen, what about uh, in terms of in another area? Um, well, for me, well, for me I'm, not, I'm not going to pick between the two, right? Because that's it's not really fair. But uh, the thing that I um, feel better about now, and this is I that it, I feel it's a good thing, and I see more of it is this kind of humility. Because what made me very pissed off when I've always I was going to do physics all the way, I did that, and then I moved into a branch of physics which does involve all these different fields, and I met so many physicists who were like, "What is all of that nonsense? Just pretend it's all a sphere." <laughs> and I met a lot of biologists who just thought physics was nonsense. And and what and and I work like I could I study bubbles under breaking waves. I can't do that job without chemistry and biology, and more important than that, I can't do it without biologists and chemists. Uh, working with me and so the thing that I like learning now from other people that I have learned less of in the past is that other fields are starting to learn some humility and there's less of this I have the framework which explains the world and you can all go away and shut up and much more of oh maybe I'm grown up enough to admit that I don't know something and uh, I see that as a good thing <laughs> so Brilliant. I like hearing it from different fields because it's reassuring that everyone isn't forgetting <laughs> that they're not all king of the world and let's note that it is usually kings and not queens of the world in this historical analogy thank well, you very much said that. It's, it's, you can approximate a head as a sphere can't you, <laughs> you know, brain thing it's very, yeah. it's very and it's, it's got that, some that famous <laughs> physics physics and biology well you know, first take a spherical cow cow yeah yeah, yeah. Yay. <laughs> well, thank you all very much. Helen, we'll be back next week. Uh, we'll be doing another Sunday Science Q&A at 3pm. Uh, we'll also have news up very, very soon about the uh, the next panel we're going to do about uh, COVID-19 as well. I really, I, I heartily recommend uh, Matthew's book. I read it. I think it's brilliant. I'm going to actually read it again. And uh, and we're going to do, uh, the fact is, it, I don't think it's gone out yet. We did a, an interview with book, on Book Shambles as well, an hour-long interview uh, about the book. That will be up soon. Uh, if you want to join our Patreon, by the way, we literally have thousands and thousands of hours of art and uh, science and music-based things that we've done and that we're, we're as well as everything that we're creating specifically for what's going on at the moment we're still trying to create all the other things that we do uh, as well so your support is, uh, is 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 welcome and i thank you very much for it um i will uh, also human universe i just read that again it is you're right brian i think it is your it's your favorite book isn't it brian yeah, that and wonders of life i mean as i said wonders of life i really enjoyed because it's such an intellectual challenge to try and get across and and write about as matthew said at the start writing about a subject that is not your own is a uh, is 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 challenging and fun no, so no, so so all of those and storm in a teacup as well which is uh so, which is a wonderful book by by helen because it does connect it to the things very often that you see every single day and then you go ah there is physics in that that's one of the great oh, things where i, I write about the maximum height of trees yeah, of course, and, and the yeah, tree height copies the whole thing. Just one in appropriate units. Just one. <laughs> <laughs> Spherical and trees. A normalised tree. Brilliant. <laughs> Thanks very much, everyone, for watching. Uh, we're back tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. with uh, Mark Gatis, and uh, I forget which hour. I think we have a musical guest with with Mark as well. And on Tuesday we have Dr. Carl. So if you have any questions for for Dr. Carl, send them to us uh, via the website uh, or via my my Twitter, Facebook, anything like that. Uh, we're going to end today with 12:01 Alarm. You may well have seen them if you've watched this before. Here is a new song from them uh they are absolutely wonderful and again another thing to uh, support them on Bandcamp. i think on the first of may by the way everyone band camper doing another of those days where they take no money whatsoever the money that you give to uh, when you're buying artist work will go entirely to the artist so uh if you're about to buy something on Bandcamp, wait till the first of may because i think they're going to do that again thanks very much i'll see some of you tomorrow
Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget cosmicshambles.com slash stay at home to catch up on all the previous episodes, find out who's coming up on upcoming episodes and to leave a tip for acts and artists and venues who are hit hardest at the moment. And if you'd like to support us at the Cosmic Shambles Network, patreon.com slash bookshambles. Oh.